You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. I just invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 101. Psalm 101 is found on page 501 in the Bibles there in the seat backs in front of you. Back in 2018, Patrick Mahomes posted this on social media. He said, I just want a store in Kansas City. Now, who can tell me to what store he was referring? That's right, Whataburger. I knew that wouldn't be quick. Mahomes wanted a Whataburger here in Kansas City, and I guess what Mahomes wants, Mahomes usually gets. We hope. I think it was back in November of 2021 when the first store in Kansas City opened. Mahomes uh, wanted it, so it must be amazing. It must be iconic. There, in fact, there was a news report put out by KNBC that showed people wrapping themselves around the building. Some folks had been camping out for seven hours just to be the first to the doors to get a hamburger. Expectations were off the charts. There's only one question I have. Does it live up to all of the hype? <laughs> that was quick. I was going to say, I'll let you decide, but you already did. Well, back in February of 2022, my son Kyle and I, we headed down to San Antonio, Texas for the lead conference that was put on by the Great Commission Collective. That's the network of churches we belong to here at Ascend Church. And it was the first day and we broke for lunch and we saw that there was a Whataburger nearby the venue. And so we decided to go check it out to see what all the buzz was about. And I just have to tell you, as you already know, it's just a hamburger. It's not going to be life-changing. But I will tell you what will be life-changing is when you begin to realize the weight of responsibility that belongs to you in this life. And that's what I believe Psalm 101 is actually pointing all of us toward this morning. To every one of us here today has been entrusted a sphere of responsibility, an arena of leadership that will require resolve, a godly Christ-centered resolve if we are to faithfully fulfill the mission that we've received from God. And so we're going to begin this morning by reading the psalm. And as I do, I just invite you to pay attention to the high expectations laid out by its author, David. And then ask yourself this question. Who is it that lives up to all of these expectations? Who is it that can live up to all of the hype, as it were? Psalm 101. A psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, there are a couple of things we want to note together this morning as we move into Psalm 101. 
I've already mentioned, and the text already demonstrates it, that this is a psalm of David. And he is writing this psalm, I believe, speaking as one who is or who will soon be in the position of ruling king over Israel. In fact, I believe there's good reason to understand this psalm potentially as his formal oath of office. But did you notice the pattern running through the text? Just reading it, or in David's day, singing it, one cannot escape noticing the repetition. If Psalm 101 were a melody written on a piece of sheet music, what note would we hear complete, continually sung? And I think you can see in the text that David sings over and over, I will, I will, I will, I will. He knows that he's not going to just trip over something and become a great king. That's not how it works. He's establishing goals. He's setting ideals that are worthy of his pursuit. Listen, without goals, you cannot lead. Because fundamental to a leader is knowing where you're going. If you want to lead just as David did as king in your sphere of responsibility entrusted to you by God, then you have to have goals. We are all called to lead in some area of responsibility. Now, the sphere of your leadership may vary, and it will vary from that of others. That's by God's design. But at a bare minimum, you are called to lead yourself. I want to speak to you singles out there and you young adults just for a second. God has entrusted to you a noble weight of responsibility in your friendships, in your families, in your workplace, and in his church. And you husbands, you are also called to lead. You're called to steward the precious marriage that God has given you. And you can't do that through passivity. And likewise, wives, you have the spheres of stewardship and incredible responsibility to lead in your marriages and in your home. But the point is this, that God has given to each of you a place, a sphere of influence in your neighborhoods, in your communities, and in your church and in your families. We're called to lead. And the weight of responsibility, once that is felt in your life, will be life-changing. So if you want to be a great leader, if you want to be a great friend, if you want to be a great husband or a wife or a great parent or a great disciple maker, listen, this psalm is pointing us toward the necessity of living with resolve. You have to set out to do it. And it begins with your internal commitments. You won't accidentally get it done. Now there's a tension here, I think, and something that we would do very well to note and be very clear on. When you and I read, I will, I will, I will, repeatedly, we could easily walk out of here this morning having heard that all we need to do is just to try a little harder. We just need to revive our own self-determination. So let's just be very clear right on this point. That is not at all the argument that is being presented to you this morning. I am not up here trying to use this psalm to drive your attention inwardly toward your own willpower so that somehow in 2024, it might be the year you actually meant it, that you really get it done. We are not religionists here at Ascend Church. You probably know that there's a, a very fine line op between operating in the grace and power of God and legalism, don't you? It's the difference between doing something because of who you are versus doing something to become who you are. And I'm afraid that sometimes Christians are hesitant to set goals like these because they think that in doing so, that somehow we're veering off into some sort of works-based righteousness. And maybe they fall and pray to the let go, let God theology that tends to breed spiritual laziness and undermine godly ambition. Or maybe it's that they have a deficient view of what Christ has already done. You see, when sinners enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, there is an immediate and miraculous transformation that occurs. 
He's not just forgiven of his sins. He's not just guaranteed the glorious future of eternal life with Christ in heaven. No, he is given new life. He is born again. Where there was once spiritual death, there is now life with Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 2 makes it very clear. Paul in his passage there points us to the reality that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from Christ, that's how we walked. He says that we were living our lives according to the passions of our flesh. And listen to this, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, Paul is saying that when you were dead spiritually, you did whatever you desired to do. And what did you desire to do? I can tell you it wasn't to worship Christ like we did this morning together. It wasn't to seek a blameless walk. It wasn't to live in holiness and integrity. Those desires only come from someone who has been made alive together with Christ. And that happens through his grace. So living by grace does not mean living without effort. You might want to write that one down. Living by grace does not mean living without effort. Effort, but rather it means living according to the new desires God has given to you because of what he has already done through the new life. God expects obedience from us. And the believer in Jesus Christ, because of the new life, desires obedience. So let's just get that straight right from the beginning as we start. Because resolutions often carry such a self-centered focus, don't they? And that could not be further from the truth from what David is trying to emphasize here. I asked you earlier, who is it that can live up to these ideals, these expectations we see set before us in Psalm 101? I venture to say that none of us who know anything about the life of King David concluded that he was the one. I want you to listen to the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2 as Peter preached in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Here in Acts chapter 2, Verse 30 and 31, Peter speaks of David. Listen to what he says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with, him, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, that's David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Peter here calls David a prophet. And David, Peter says, anticipated that this promised descendant of his would be holy and righteous in a way he never could be. So David, I'm convinced, was keenly aware of his sin and shortcomings. Even as he pins this psalm before us this morning, he knew that he would never be able to perfectly attain to these expectations. And even though the history of David's life cast a shadow of failure across this psalm, it did not stop him from pursuing the perfections of the son of David, the greater king, the greater son, who ultimately fills every hope and every ideal and every expectation and fulfills every promise. The Lord Jesus himself said to his own disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so while the words of this psalm belong to David, we can understand in a foreshadowing sense the voice that is speaking through them to be ultimately of that greater son of David who alone would perfectly fulfill them. And that leads us to our big idea this morning. The argument that this amazing text is making to us, and that is this, that fulfilling God's mission in your life, whether you are a king in Israel or simply trying to be faithful in the arena of leadership God has entrusted to you, fulfilling God's mission in your life begins with resolutely pursuing Christ's perfections. 
We're going to quickly work our way through the psalm and see the resolve of the believer who wants to fulfill the mission God has assigned to him. And as we do this, I just want you to keep in mind that we are ultimately seeking to be like Christ. We're seeking him as the ultimate one who perfectly lives up to all of these standards. Let's look first at the faithful leader's positive pursuits. Verse 1. David writes, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you. O Lord, I will make music. The first thing that we need to see, which lies at the heart of every resolute pursuit that follows, is that the faithful leader pursues perfect praise. David resolves here to set his sights on God. Look at what David writes. He says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. The word for steadfast love in the Hebrew is the term hesed. And I'm sure many of, you, many of you are familiar with that term. David, in fact, uses that term in nearly half of the 75 psalms he authors. But perhaps the best reference we could turn to to understand chesed, it would be from God's own mouth, as it were, as he spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. And by the way, there we will see that we'll see both God's steadfast love and his justice put on display. The term justice in, in our verse actually is referring to the act of making a right decision. It's the act of judging rightly, always doing what's right. So I'll just quote Exodus 34 for you. And here the Lord speaking to Moses says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. For me, it couldn't be any more clear that David here is resolving to not only set his mind, but in fact his whole heart on the character of God. In fact, he says so in the very next phrase. You see it? He says, to you, O Lord. To you, O Lord, I will make music. David's resolve is first and foremost on beholding God for who he is. And how is it that we can know God as David knew him? Was well, through the scriptures. God reveals himself to man through his word. And David loved God's word because through it, he knew God. Pursuing perfect praise, though, is not simply a matter of knowing truth about God, but it's primarily a matter of knowing God personally. And it's evidenced here, I think, by David's affection and desire for God. Look at what he writes. He says, I will sing. I'll make music to you. His heart, his desires, his whole being is focused on worshiping. And I have to say this, if you don't start with worshiping God, you can never expect to fulfill the mission God has assigned to you. David here is declaring, I need to be a worshiper. I must be a worshiper. I will sing. Singing is interesting, isn't it? I know that we're all wired different emotionally. And singing is very closely tied to our emotions. It can feel very vulnerable. But listen, it's not soft. Leaders sing to God. And you need to be a singer. If the truth of who God is in his steadfast love and his justice. And of course, we understand that those two things are pointing ultimately to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we see the perfect pairing of mercy and justice in the Christ on the cross we just sung about this morning. If the truth of the gospel, as we sing of it, doesn't do something for you, then something else is going on inside of you. Because nothing unlocks passion for the glory of God like singing to him. 
In fact, it's a mark of being filled with his spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the spirit, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. But some of you right now, I think, might be struggling to sing because you're going through some difficult situations that makes rejoicing in the Lord seem like a very steep hill to climb, right? But I think what David is saying here is that he's making an internal commitment, a, an internal resolve to pursue perfect praise of his God. Not on the basis of how he feels from moment to moment or day to day. No, what he's saying is, for me to be a faithful and effective king, I need to be a worshiper of God. And God wants the same thing for you. He wants your feelings and his truth to come into alignment because so often they can feel like they're so far apart. And that is exactly why we need the internal commitment, the resolve to seeing leaders resolutely pursue perfect praise. Number two, the second positive pursuit of the faithful leader is pondered practice. Pondered practice. Look at verse two. David writes, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Now that word ponder, that's an interesting term. Now I'm a tinkerer, which means I'm generally unafraid to try fixing things before I'm willing to pay someone to fix them. And some might say that's cheap, but I think it's being resourceful. On some certain occasions, I've had to do some repairs on this iPhone. I've had to replace the battery a number of times on my iPhone. And I think that repairing the battery, doing that kind of repair, is probably about the closest I'll ever get to performing surgery. You just ask my wife. It's not pretty when Ken Heiser sees the insides of a person on the outside, okay? But when I get a, a, a micro screwdriver set in front of me and the opportunity to, to dismantle a piece of technology, I'm game for it. In fact, I like to do that. Only thing I've learned is that I really need to ponder closely the instructions, if I'm going to have success, because there's all sorts of different screws and techniques and you have to heat it differently. It is a complicated task. And if I'm going to find success, I have to follow those instructions precisely and wisely if I'm going to get the repair pulled off. And this, I think, is the sense of what David is saying here. Just like we need to examine closely the instructions for a repair of an iPhone, if we're to find success, we also must examine the instruction manual for blamelessness. The way, he says in verse 2, is pointing us once again, I believe, to carefully following all of God's commands found in Scripture and wisely applying those precepts for living. I love Deuteronomy 17. Beginning in verse 18, what we find is this incredible passage where God is laying out laws for any man who would be a king over his people. Listen to what God says in that passage, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 and following. He says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, any man who would sit on the throne of God's kingdom, God says, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law and that this copy that he writes must be approved by the Levitical priests. I think that's fascinating because I think it's the perfect example of what David is actually communicating here in verse 2 of Psalm 101 where he writes, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I think when he's writing that, he actually has in mind the kings of Israel who were required by God to write out for themselves a copy of the law of God to keep it with them, to read all the days of their lives. Why? So that they, as they grow to learn and fear God, might actually obey God and not turn from the right or to the left. So David here is actually resolving, I believe, to be a man of God's word. The faithful leader pursues a pondered practice. His aim is to be perfectly obedient to every word of God. 
And while David had to, as a king, copy and carefully study the way that is blameless, listen, the greater son of David, the perfect king, he is actually presented to us in Scripture as himself being the way. He is actually presented to us in Scripture as himself being the eternal word. He is actually presented to us in Scripture as himself being the fulfillment of God's law. I love how John puts it in John chapter 1, verse 17. There he writes, for the law was given through Moses. Now, of course, that's the very law that every king of Israel was required to copy and study. But John goes on to say, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's interesting is the moment that you fix your gaze on the perfections of Jesus Christ, that is the moment you realize you cannot get there on your own. You will be in constant awareness of your need for the presence and the grace of God in your life. This pursuit of blamelessness must always be accompanied by a persistent prayer to God. A prayer that says, God, I need you. Would you come and help me? Come be with me. Oh, when will you come to me, David prays. I love that. I love that David as king is publicly committing to this. For this to be the culture of his life and his heart and his home. He says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Now, you know, my wife and I, we, uh, we purposed many years ago before any of our children were born to pray for and pursue within our home the following goal. In fact, we have it written on the wall above our bed. And it's this statement that says that we and our children would love and serve Jesus with an undivided heart. And it's our way of saying that we are resolved in this pursuit toward integrity. Integrity is what happens when you ponder the way that is blameless. It, it, it's when you don't turn to the right or to the left. I think perhaps the easiest way to understand integrity is just to simply think of it as the opposite of hypocrisy. The person you are in public is the person you are at home with your family. It's the person you are when it's just you and your smartphone. And let me just say this. With the Lord's help, I believe that personal integrity of heart is the most significant way that you will ever impact those in your sphere of responsibility. It's worthy of our pursuit and our resolve. So the faithful leader must have these positive pursuits of perfect praise and pondered practice. But he must also commit to setting up protective policies for his life and mission. Look at verse 3. There David writes, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. If you skip down to verse 4, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And before we get into the details of what these verses are saying, I just want to draw your attention to his use of the words anything and nothing. Because those words communicate absolutes. And what I believe David is actually doing is he's setting a zero tolerance policy in his life. What is a policy, by the way? The Cambridge Dictionary says that a policy is a set of ideas or a plan of what to do in particular situations. And what policies do is they set up guidelines and guardrails in order to preemptively decide what to do so that it doesn't always come down to a case-by-case -case decision. Policies serve to reduce the number of decisions that you have to make in your life. And this is so important because we all know that our lives are a series of decisions that we're making. And if you put yourself, I believe, in a place where you have to decide a scenario every single time it comes across your path, you may be actually placing yourself in a position of risk and vulnerability. For example, let's just think about social media. If you're aimlessly scrolling through videos and feeds on your phone, 
Coming across an inappropriate video or an image, you're then having to actually live decision by decision. You're, you're in the moment having to decide whether you're going to pause and set that thing before your eyes or not. And you're likely not protecting yourself or your heart or your home very effectively. If you live this way, decision by decision, I believe what's going to eventually happen is that you will wear out. And you will risk moving down this progression toward the evil that he then identifies in verses 3 and 4. So David sets up a policy to govern first his own personal purity. And I imagine that nearly 100% of us, when we read verse 3, we immediately think about what we view on our phones and in, on the television or at movies and media. It's no secret that as a society, one of our greatest temptations is that in the area of lust. And that lust is largely the result of the media that we consume. And by the way, this phrase, set before my eyes that you see here, it carries the idea of looking upon something or considering something deliberately with design, desire, and delight. The word worthless in our text literally means a thing of Belial. It's translated worthless in most places throughout the scriptures, but I think it actually goes a bit deeper. It's hard to be real, uh, really precise on the meaning of this term, but I believe it probably lies somewhere between worthless and vile and demonic. And I take it as anything that has a demonic origin that is consistent with Satan's pattern of twisting and corrupting that which is created by God to be good and turning it into something that's vile and wicked. David says, I am not going to set anything before my eyes. I am not going to deliberately allow my affections and my desires to be directed toward that which has been corrupted or twisted by evil. That is exactly what Satan does. He steals and he kills and he destroys. He cannot create. He can only corrupt anything, David says, that does not pass the test of worth. Paul puts it positively in Philippians 4, 8 in this way. There he says, finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, he says, think on these things. That's a very good list for us to live by. But if we think that we can somehow float through life without a care, confident that, that we'll be able to endure any temptation that comes our way, just know this, and you already do know this. Pride goes before the, the fall. And many have fallen, haven't they? Many. We would do better, rather, to structure our lives in such a way so as to reduce as much as possible the number of these kinds of decisions that we will face. And listen, that is not legalism. Remember, we're talking about here is a desire for personal purity that is itself the product of Christ's operative grace in our lives. It's because we desire to pursue the perfections of Christ that we then set up guidelines and guardrails and policies in our lives. I am not going to try to spell out what that should look like for you in your life and home, but I would ask you this question. Do you have a protective policy in place in your life and home for personal purity? You see, the progression toward evil can come upon you seemingly out of the blue. Look at what he says. It starts with the eyes, the organ of desire. Looking upon, considering something with desire and delight, something that has no worth, something that's been twisted and corrupted, some, perhaps corrupted to appeal to a God-given natural desire, but to do so in a wicked, worthless, and vile way. But it can move quickly to what he states next in the next part of verse 3. 
There he says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Literally, what he's referring to is swerving. That is the sense of fall away. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 17? As king, David was required to copy the law of God. Read it, obey it. And in that text, God says it's so that the king might not turn to the left or to the right. That's the idea of swerving. You start out well, but then something catches your eye of desire. And because you're not guarding yourself, because you don't have any protective policies in place, it soon turns you off of the path of blamelessness. And what comes next is complete twisting and perverting of the heart that leads to evil. That's what David calls it, the perverse heart. And David says, I don't want anything to do with any of that. And so he needs to set up protective policies. Now up to this point in our psalm, David has been focused on his internal protection. Beginning now in verse 5, he seems to expand his resolve to protect his house or his court from external threats. And he sets forth a protective policy regarding proper partnerships. Look at verse 5 with me. There he writes, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. If you and I are serious about wanting to be faithful leaders, then we need to set a policy in our lives about who will hold influence over us and over those in our sphere of responsibility. What David is speaking of here specifically, I believe, is regarding those who will form his cabinet, the king's court. David says, I need counselors, I need advisors, I need friends. But listen, those closest to me must align with my values. Those who are disloyal, those who are deceitful, those who are dishonest, who are self-advancing, who are narcissistically trying to get ahead by undermining other people. Those who don't pursue the Lord, those who don't pursue his ways, I will not keep around me. He says, I want only those who are proven to be faithful. I want those who share the same pursuit of perfect praise and practice and purity as I do. Those are the ones I want and I need closest to me. And friends, we need to be strategic in our friendships and our closest relationships. I just want to talk to you singles out there for a second. I want you to really pay attention. I cannot stress this enough. If you believe as a single here this morning that God is moving you toward marriage, listen, you have to find someone who will always love Jesus more than they will ever love you. Please hear me on this because time and time again, guys can be infatuated with physical beauty over inner beauty, faithfulness and devotion to Christ. And ladies can be swept off their feet by a man who makes them feel special and important while never considering what influence you might be inviting into your life, into your heart, into your home. Do not make that mistake. Because we've all seen it, haven't we? We've seen people who live day after day in relational strife because they're unequally yoked. They're living with a spouse who's pulling in opposite directions because they have not set a clear policy to guard their heart about partnerships that they are pursuing. If you don't set that policy, you might blur the line. and You might betray your better judgment and make a very bad decision. David is saying, surround yourself with people who will speak truth to you who will point you to Christ, who are faithful and committed to this way of blamelessness. 
You might be saying with me this morning, Ken, I, I want that in my life. I want that kind of partnership in my life. I just don't know where or how to find it. And my response to you is simply this. You have to get to know other people. Coming here and just sitting in a service week after week isn't going to get it done. You've got to get in involved in the life of the body here. And dig a little. Those kind of people are not just drawing attention to themselves either. They're simply quietly walking and worshiping and worshiping their Christ. And listen, you're not looking for someone who's perfect either. You're just trying to find someone who's pursuing, who demonstrates resolve in their life. For example, you younger marrieds, you ought to be seeking out in this body those older marrieds who have demonstrated faithfulness and fruitfulness in their marriage. You men and women, you need to find other godly older men and women in your lives who have shown by their track record, track, record, track record that they are pursuing blamelessness and faithfulness in their lives. And the way you do that is you go to the men's ministry meetings, you go to the women's meetings, you go to the small groups, you attend the events and you ask people questions and you get past the surface. And again, this goes back to our big idea. If you want to fulfill God's mission in your life, it will require resolute pursuit. God's grace does not absolve us from effort. This isn't just going to happen on its own. I also think that this is a good place for us to stop and ask ourselves this question. Who are the people I've allowed to influence me or those in my sphere of responsibility? Who are they? Have I given space in my life in some way for slanders or gossipers? People who are always trying to get me to take a bite of their juicy morsel or to bend my ear to some insider information or secret criticism about others? What about the person who's always trying to get you to cut corners at work? That one who's just trying to get you to take this shortcut or, or to fool the boss? How are you protecting yourself and others around you from the bad company that corrupts good character? What protective policies have you established regarding proper partnerships in your life? Do you already know how you will respond? Has that been set in stone? How you will respond when someone tries to bend your ear toward gossip? Do you already know how you're protecting your home from the self-centered and self-worshipping culture of our day that is trying to press in and take the minds and hearts of your family? Again, this text is calling us to make those decisions preemptively. Finally, verse 8. We come to a final protective policy, one that reminds us that we can never afford to let our guard down. David says, verse 8, Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. And what he points us to now is his resolve for perpetual purging. And what's unique about this last verse is the setting. I haven't really focused or drawn your attention to it, but there's a progressive expansion taking place throughout this psalm. In verses 1 through 4, the setting is David's own heart. In verses 5 through 7, we see that setting expand to his court or to his administration. And now in verse 8, we see it expand even further. His focus now is on the whole kingdom. Do you see it in the text? Look at verse 8. He is now talking about the city of the Lord. The city of the Lord refers to Zion. It refers to Jerusalem. But it is emblematic of the whole kingdom. And he really is sensing now the weight of his stewardship as king to present back to his God a purified kingdom. 
This is the Lord's city, he writes. And David is clearly underscoring that though he is king, he is under the ultimate rulership of God. God's people were chosen by him to be distinct, to be separate, to be holy unto him. And David knows that he must perpetually, every single morning, purge and protect the purity of the kingdom. And I think this, it's really important that we feel the weight of what he's saying here in verse 8. Look at the words he uses. He says, morning by morning. That is, from the earliest part of the day all the way until the earliest part of the next day. This communicates not only the perpetual nature of what he's doing. If that's all he wanted to say, he could have simply just said day by day or every day. But when he says morning by morning, what he's communicating here is that this protection over the kingdom was not only to be perpetual, but it was also to be prioritized. It's the first thing on his mind every single day, the purity of the kingdom and how he stewards that for God. But then there's another word. Look there in verse 8. He uses it twice. Do you see it? Verse 8, he says, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all evildoers. He's saying there is no room for any wicked or evil doers in God's kingdom. It is absolute. And it should lead you and me to ask this question. How serious am I about holiness in my life and my home? Do I prioritize it? Do I protect it? Is holiness a continual and perpetual desire in my life? And listen, again, it is not legalistic to think this way. Peter actually teaches us that this is how those who operate by grace think and live. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and 16 through 16. Therefore, Peter writes, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And listen, I don't know how this message is landing on you this morning. But I have prayed that none of you would be driven to a place of looking at your lives and then looking at this text, and then looking at the standards of perfection set before us in this text, only then just to throw your hands up in the air in defeat and say, I just can't do this. Rather, my desire is that you, as you consider the perfections of Christ that this psalm is pointing us toward, that it will drive you to, to cry out just as David did and to say to God, oh God, when will you come to me? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit this morning has shown you that, that you need to, his help to live out this coming year resolutely pursuing the perfections of your Savior. And if God has uncovered for you in your life some area that needs his help, we have our prayer team coming down. They're going to be on either side of the stage. And I would just challenge you right now to make your first step of resolve to be that of coming down and, and being public and making your resolve known and letting someone pray with you. I also know that in this room, it's very likely that there are some of you who do not have confidence that you've been born again. So just let me urge you to consider this very sobering reality. Just as King David was called to purge his kingdom of the wicked and of the evildoers, the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, 
will also purge his kingdom. We read in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 15, Jesus himself saying, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he says, blessed are those who wash their robes. You wash your robes by surrendering, surrendering your life right now to the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him and him alone. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and listen, that they may enter the city by the gates. Then he identifies a second group that is outside the city. He says, outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so if you're convicted this morning that you might be among those who are left outside the city of the Lord, if you are convicted that you might not today be saved, I'm just pleading with you right now, please do not keep that to yourself. Please go find someone to talk to. Come down and, and talk to me after the service or talk to the person who invited you here this morning. Oh God, we ask you to come to us and we recognize that, 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 that we cannot live up to these perfections, the perfections of who you are, but you are merciful and you are gracious and you are slow to anger and you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are a God who delights to save sinners. You delight to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. So God, I pray that every one of us here this morning would live in the power of the new life that is in Christ and that we will faithfully fulfill the mission and the purpose for which you have saved us. And we ask these things in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.